Good morning. Um, I'm really, really blessed to get to do this today. I just want to thank the church and thank the elders. I love all of you guys. And uh, this is quite an honor and a privilege to me being, you know, Dexter's dad. And and, uh, I've wanted to preach this text that we're going to be in today ever since I taught through it on Wednesday night Bible study, and the Lord has just given me the absolute perfect opportunity to preach it. Um, We've been hearing a lot over the last three sermons about discernment and about the necessity of being steeped in the Word of God and, and to soak in it, to learn it, to sit under the preaching of it, and all of these things from the negative side so that we can exercise discernment, so that we can... Uh, be safe from all the deceit of the world and all of those things. And that's that's one side of it that's important. Today we're going to look at the positive side of that. We're going to look at the other side of the coin. And, uh, you know, I am I am thrilled with what's going on with Dexter. There's, there's nothing more exciting for a father to see one of your children saved, to see them come to love the Lord, and then to see them called into ministry. To love Him, to love His truth, and to want to proclaim it, to want to to love people with the truth, um, it's, it's really exciting. And I know that you guys know that. So the, we're going to be in Judges chapter 6 today, and then also chapter 7. I'm going to have a couple of little snippets from chapter 6, because there's a couple of points I want to make in chapter 6. And then we'll go through the whole chapters of chapter 7. The title of this message is The Sword of the Lord. Um, and I can tell you right now, you're going to notice that I skip a lot of stuff. There are several sermons in these two chapters, several sermons. I'm going to try to just preach one. So, uh, And I've got five points. I'll tell you that ahead of time. I've got five points I'm going to make and uh, and work through the text. And when I skip some things that you're going to say, well, why didn't he talk, talk about that? It's because I've got these points I want to make. And, and it, yeah, you know, I know the sermons go kind of long here, but we are limited on time, so uh, so we're going we're gonna to do it this way. So, anyway, Judges 6 and 7 is where we're going to be. But I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians 1. <laughs> Y'all don't have to turn there, <laughs> but that's where I'm starting. This is going to kind of set the theme for our message this morning. And uh, <clears throat> before I read, I want to pray. Father, thank you for this grace and thank you for this privilege. Thank you for saving my son. Thank you for calling him to yourself, for, for raising him up and lighting a fire in him to preach the word, to love you, to serve you. Lord, I pray that you be with Raina. As we study your word, that you just keep her and the baby safe and that you just hold things off until we, until we go through this very important ceremony that you've given us. Lord, I pray that you open our hearts to, to see and understand what you're saying to us in this word and to, to worship you this morning. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren. 
that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord." I'd ask you to meditate on the truth of this passage that I just read. Let that soak in what he's saying. Not many wise, not many mightily, not many noble. Think about who God uses and why, because that's the theme of our message today. And we're going to start out in Judges chapter 6. And I know that most of the Sovereign Grace people, I know that Ronnie has gone through Joshua some here lately. And uh, I know that you all probably understand the context of Judges. But for anybody that's here that doesn't, Judges is the time period from the death of Joshua until Saul was anointed the first king of, of Israel. It's that time period when Israel is supposed to be a nation that is a loose confederation of tribes ruled by God through the rule of law. God gave them law. And they're supposed to be ruled by God as their sovereign through the rule of law. And the problem is, is well, most of you that have read Romans 9 know that not all Israel was Israel. Not all of them were converted. As a matter of fact, most of them were not. And most of them did not worship God, and they didn't obey the law. They worshipped idols, and they took up the practices of the people of the lands. And every time they would do that, they would fall into sin and idolatry. God would send judgment and discipline, and then they would cry out for deliverance. Now, they didn't want deliverance from their idolatry, but they wanted deliverance from the oppression. They would cry out for deliverance. God would raise up a judge who would deliver them, and then the cycle would repeat. And so that's where we're at in Judges chapter 6. It says, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which are in the mountains, in the caves, in the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable. They came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. 
I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. What we're seeing in this is Midian is like a flock of locusts. They come in about the time that it's time to harvest the crops. They come in like a horde, like like a swarm. And all the Israelites have to go hide in the mountains to keep from getting killed. And their crops are just harvesting. So every year you go out and you plant your crops, you sow your fields. And before you get to harvest it, somebody else comes in and just takes it. And you have to go hide for your life. That's what's going on. And this has happened seven years. So they have nothing. Their livestock's been stolen. Some of them have been killed. They're under a very, very severe hand of of oppression, and they are helpless to do anything about it. Absolutely helpless. They cry out for deliverance, but immediately the Lord doesn't send them a deliverer. He sends them a prophet. And here's the verdict that the prophet brings them. He says, Thus says the Lord, I am the Lord who's given you freedom and life and everything you have. I require that you worship me alone, but you have not obeyed me. And here's the thing. They have no intention of obeying him. They have no intention of it. They want deliverance from their physical oppression, from the outward consequences. But they don't want deliverance from their sin and idolatry. That was the condition of man then. That was the condition of man in Jesus' day. The Jews did not want to be delivered from sin. They wanted to be delivered from Rome. That's the condition of man today. Man doesn't want to be delivered from his sin. He wants to be delivered from discomfort. He wants to be saved from hell. He wants to be saved from poverty, from sickness, But he wants to hang on to his pride and his sin, his idolatry. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. That's Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. Here's what happened then. God in His mercy is going to go ahead and save His people anyway. Even though they don't deserve it. Even though they don't have any intention of worshiping Him and obeying Him. He's going to save His people and deliver them anyway. Let's look at verses 11 through 16. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? 
But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. I want you to know something going into this. You've been taught this story wrong all your life. This is not a moralistic story. Gideon is not the hero of this story. He's not the champion, no matter what they taught you in Sunday school. Gideon's not a hero with potential who only needs the Lord to come along and draw it out of him. That's not what Gideon is. There is a hero in this story. It's the same hero in every story that you read in Judges. Samson's not the hero in the story of Samson. Christ is the hero in this story and that story and every other story in the Bible. The Lord approaches Gideon and he speaks to him the way that he does, not to highlight Gideon's strength, but to call attention to the fact that he doesn't have any. That's why he approaches Gideon the way he does. Dexter, you are extremely eloquent. You are a great expositor. The Lord has gifted you in what you see in Scripture and in your ability to speak it. But that's not why He's called you to this. In verse 14, the Lord tells Gideon, Go in this your strength. In verse 15, Gideon correctly assesses reality. I am the least of the least. My family is the least in my tribe, and I'm the least in my family. I want you to know something in verse 16. The Lord doesn't argue with Gideon's assessment. Instead, he states the reason why Gideon's going to be victorious, and it has nothing to do with Gideon. He says, I will be with you. I will be with you. Listen to something from Isaiah 45. Someday just go hang out in Isaiah 45 if you've never been there. Verse 24. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. He says, They will say of me, Only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to Him. All who were angry at Him will be put to shame. This is my first point. Gideon wasn't chosen for his strength or his potential. He was chosen because of his weakness. He was chosen because of his weakness. Remember in 1 Corinthians 1 when I was reading it a while ago, do you know why there weren't many wise or many mighty that were chosen? Because God delights to use people who are so weak that they cast themselves entirely upon Him. They rest in His strength, not their own. Not their own. Paul testifies to that in 2 Corinthians. 
<clears throat> Some of y'all have, have heard me preach before know that there will be a lot of Scripture today. You don't have to turn. But Second Corinthians 12.10, Paul says, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions. And I started in the wrong verses, 9. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So you're either going to fight in your strength or you're going to fight in Christ's strength. It's either going to be Christ doing the battle or you. We're sending Dexter into the battle. But that battle's here too, so this applies to everybody here. It doesn't just apply to, Christ, to, to Dexter. It, it applies to all of us. So now we're going to skip all of the stuff about the fleece and everything. We're just going to get down to the end and also Gideon's test of faith with the sacrifice. Go back and read that sometime. It's really good. But we're going to go down to the end of the chapter. And here's what's happened. It's harvest time, so the Midianites have come back. And at the end of chapter 6, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon, and he sends out a call to arms. 32,000 respond to the call. So let's start in chapter 7, verse 1. Then Gideon said to God, or then, then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. So Gideon and these 32,000 men who had responded to the call, they rise up to go against Midian. They watch out to war. They make camp a few miles south of the Midianite position. Gideon has 32,000 men to begin with. <clears throat> now, we know from chapter 8, verse 10, that the army he's going to fight has at least 135,000 men. So he has 32,000. The Midianites have at least 135,000. It's probably more than that, but at least that amount. These are stiff odds, but they're not insurmountable. With a great battle plan, tremendous courage, and a little bit of help from God, victory can be achieved. A force of 32,000 can defeat a force of 130,000. With the right plan, the right strategy, the right leader, it can happen. So verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. So the very fact that victory is possible means that God's going to change the odds. God's going to reduce the size of the army because God's people must see that they're completely insufficient in themselves. They have to see that. If they don't, they will never completely trust in the sufficiency of God and do things His way. As long as you think that your way might lead you to success, you're going to take it. Till you come to the end of yourself and you don't have any sufficiency, you won't trust fully in God and His plan. And 
And of course, if we do things our way and we succeed in our own strength, even if we acknowledge we tip the hat to God, yeah, God helped me out. The Lord blessed me in that. But, you know, I just had a good plan. I worked it out. You see what's going to happen? Even if we tip the hat to God, if we do it in our own strength, we're going to boast in it. We're going to take credit for it. God says, I will not share my glory with another. He will not. Verse 3. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. He started out with 32,000. Two-thirds of them just went home. What God did is God evoked, He invoked one of the laws of war from Deuteronomy 20, verse 8. I'm going to read it to you right quick. You don't have to turn there. But in Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, when God was giving the laws, he, uh, He gave a law about battle. It says, Then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. So if you got any fearful, send them home. That's what they did. Two-thirds go home. Now let's look at verses 4 through 8. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. There's still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But every one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as the dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets from their ha- into their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. God says, Gideon, you've still got too many people. You've still got too many. I'm going to devise a test by which I will lower the size of your army to a number that I deem to be acceptable for me to deliver the people with. I want you to remember something when you read this. The emphasis here is on the weakness of God's people and His strength in delivering them. Many commentators have come up with elaborate explanations, and you probably had this taught to you in Sunday school, that there was something superior about those 300 that lapped the water out of their hands. They've come up with all kinds of explanations about why those guys are better soldiers. Well, they don't take their eyes off the horizon. You know, they're always looking. You know, they're alert, so they're better soldiers. That's eisegesis. 
That's reading something into the text that's just not there. All that this is about is just a mechanism that God uses to shrink the size of the fighting force. He's not building the Green Berets. He's not building the Navy SEALs or the Israeli Special Forces. That's not what he's doing here. He's lowering the army down to... These guys aren't going to fight anyway. Think about that for a minute. They're not going to fight. He's going to give them an assignment that they have to obey. But God is the one that's going to do the fighting. Notice that in verse 7. God says, I will deliver you with the 300 men. That's what God tells Gideon. This is the point. The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. God has brought Gideon to the point where he only has one alternative. Would you like to have been one of those 300 guys? Think about that. You start with 32,000 and you're scared to death anyway. Then 20,000 of them go home. Now you're down to 300 and you're watching that rest of that army walk away and you're looking around at the little force you've got left and you can see this horde over there on the side of that mountain. That would have been a scary situation. It would have been a situation that would test your resolve. But here's what God has done with Gideon. God has brought Gideon to the point where he's only got one alternative. This is point number two. Gideon can either fight by faith or not at all. That's where Gideon's at. He's going to have to trust God and do things God's way or he has no hope. No hope whatsoever. Gideon and his men are not going to contribute to the outcome of this battle. God is going to do it. They just have to be obedient. Let's look at verses 9 through 15. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Purah, your servant, down to the camp. And you will hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Purah, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Malachites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. He said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent, and it struck it so that it fell, and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. His friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. Gideon knows how hopeless the situation is from human perspective. He knows that. He understands it. 
But God is going to give Gideon the faith that he needs to obey. God's going to give him the faith that he needs to obey, that he needs to march into this battle. Listen to Psalm 103. God knows our circumstances, and he knows our situation. He knows the weakness of our faith. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, it says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God knows where Gideon's at, and he's going to give him what he needs. How does he do it? He sends Gideon into the enemy camp, and he lets him overhear a conversation between two of the Midianite soldiers. And the conversation basically is, I had a dream. And then the other guy interprets it. And the interpretation is, God has given this camp, this army, into the hand of Gideon. Verse 15 tells us that upon hearing the dream and its interpretation, that Gideon worshipped. He worshipped. He didn't jump up and down with excitement or take off running back up to the camp. He bowed and worshipped. Why did Gideon worship when he heard that? Gideon worshipped because he suddenly had a much clearer picture of who God is. I just think about this for a moment. These men weren't believers. They didn't worship God. They didn't have scriptures. They didn't have the law. They worshipped idols, superstitions. But God gave one man the dream, and he gave the other one the interpretation. Gideon suddenly understood that God was really, really sovereign. He understood a whole lot more about sovereignty than he had before. God's not just an actor in this battle. God is sovereign even over the hearts and minds of the enemy. Gideon come to understand that. God, this is point number three. You know how God increases our faith? God increases our faith by showing us more of himself. That's how he increases our faith. He gives us a clearer picture of his glory. He shows us more of who he is. And where does he show that to us at? He shows it to us in his word. So Gideon marches back to the camp. He arouses the troops and he tells them with confidence, without hesitation, the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. Verses 16 through 21. He divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers, clay pots, into the hands of all of them, with torches inside the pitchers. He said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. 
when they had just posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp, and all the enemy ran, crying out as they fled. Now picture this. You've got a camp of 135,000 troops. You've got a skirmish line of 300 men. You've got a hundred here in the middle, spread out. I don't know how far apart they were, but spread out. Then you've got another hundred and another hundred, and they're marching down the hill toward these 135,000, and they're doing it right at shift change when the watch is changing. But they march up there, and this is what they do. They smash those pitchers, and they blow the horn and shine the light. Immediately, immediately, we're going to see why it is of utmost importance that God's soldiers give up all hope of victory in our own strength or wisdom, and we trust ourselves completely to God. We have to do that. <clears throat> I'm getting ahead of myself, but just think about this. On a battle line, in the dark, and I'm going to make noise and hold up a torch. What is that? That's a target. That is all that is, is a target. I'm going to put out that light if I'm one of those other soldiers. <clears throat> and, and, you know, that really does carry a lot of, that's exactly what happens, too, when you blow that trumpet and shine that light. Somebody's going to try to put it out. Paul was talking to you about that earlier, Dexter. When you blow that trumpet and you shine that light, you proclaim that message, immediately you're a target. The weapons they're given are not carnal weapons of war, are they? That's not what they're going to win with. If I were planning this operation with 300 men, I can tell you what I would have done. I, I thought this out as I was studying through it. I would have filled those clay pots full of flaming arrows, not torches. I'd have given them all a bow and we'd have rained fire on the tents. You know? That's the only thing I can think of. That's the way I would have done it. But that wasn't the way God did it. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God's plan was for these 300 men not to enter into the physical engagement with the enemy at all. They're not going to physically engage. Their job is just to shine the light, blow the trumpet, and broadcast the message that God has given them. That's their job. God Himself did all the fighting. The armies of Midian were overcome by the sheer terror of the Lord. If any of these 300 men had a sword, it wasn't in their hand. If they were wearing one at their side, a physical sword, it wasn't in their hand. They had a torch in their left hand and a trumpet in their right. Now I want to show you something about seeing spiritual reality. You need to be able to see spiritual reality in this, in this text. To show you something about it, I'm going to read you something from 2 Kings chapter 6. <clears throat> in 2 Kings chapter 6, it's about the prophet Elisha. 
And I'm just going to read you the passage and then talk about it a little bit. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. The man of God, Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. The king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had, the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? He thought, We've got a spy telling them our plans. One of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was encircling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. With that idea in mind that there's a spiritual reality that we don't see physically with our physical eyes, What is the sword of the Lord by which the armies of God are victorious? What is the sword of the Lord by which we're victorious? I'm going to show you a picture of spiritual reality similar to what you just saw. I'm going to show it to you in Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to start reading in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the the fierce wrath of God the Almighty." And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, I want you to know something. This is not just something that we're waiting on. This is spiritual reality. I don't care what your eschatological position was. Spurgeon saw this vision, and he was premillennial. When this word is preached, when this gospel is preached, 
When the Word of God is proclaimed faithfully, Christ goes forth riding on His white horse, followed by the host of heaven, and He defeats His enemies. He conquers them. This is the positive side of what we've been talking about, the Word of God giving us discernment and protection. This is our only offensive weapon, and it's the only one we need. The Word of God conquers and slays. He slay, and in another place it says, He will slay His enemies by the Word of His mouth. By the Word of the Lord, the heavens were created. All the power in the universe is in the Word of God. The Word of God. If you're going to be a preacher, you've got to get that vision. You need to understand where the power is. You need to understand what your weapon is. Your weapon is this Word. If you're going to live the Christian life, you need to get that vision. You need to understand the, the power to overcome your sin is in the Word of God. It's the Gospel. The Gospel is the summary of this. You can summarize this whole book. Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the summary of this. The whole thing is about Him. It's all pointing to Him. And when you proclaim this, this is the sword that's coming out of His mouth and it drives out the darkness and it slays the enemy. His Word proclaimed by us, that is our sword. The assignment of Gideon's soldiers was to blow the trumpet. Blow the trumpet of the gospel. Shine the light. You know what the light is? Think, think about the visual imagery here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. This treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not ourselves. We have, you know, the light is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And these vessels are broken. These pictures, they smash them. These broken vessels that you've got the light of Christ shining through these broken vessels. So the soldiers have the assignment of blowing the trumpet, shining the light, and proclaiming the message that God has given them, the word that God has given them. What's the assignment given to Christ's soldiers? Our job is to blow the trumpet, shine the light, proclaim the message, stand our ground. Did you notice that? Each stood in his place around the camp. They stood their ground. So you proclaim the Word of God and you stand your ground. Stand your ground out here in the world. Stand your ground in your own life. Preach the Word to yourself and believe it. Stand your ground and trust God for the victory because you can't accomplish it. Verse 22 says, When they blew three hundred trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Bathsheba, 
towards the Herrera, as far as the edge of Abel, Mahola, Bath to Bath. God's enemies kill each other and ultimately themselves. But something that struck me in this verse, opposition to God is suicide. It really is. Opposition to God is life. He is life. He's the source of every good thing. And you think about that. Sinful people, what do they want? They don't want God to exist. They want to be away from God. They want to hide from God. What's the first thing Adam does when he falls into sea? And he goes and hides from the very source of life. There's no life outside of him. Verses 23 through 25, and we'll wrap this up. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian, take the waters before them as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. See, all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb while they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. A lot of interesting stuff in there we could get into. I think Oreb means raven and Zeb means wolf. And think of what they were doing. They were ravaging the country. Um, but we're not going to get into all of that. The point is, God has secured the victory. Now that God has secured the victory himself, God's people are called in for the mop-up. This is point number five. I think I might have left number four out, but if I did, I'm sorry. Every success that we experience in the Christian life, whether it's seeing someone saved through our preaching or our witness, or whether it's personal victory over sin in our own life, is only ours because God has already won the victory. He's already given us the victory in Christ. That's what... Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, 57. He says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you what these guys did. They did come and they mopped up. And then in the first of chapter 8, and we're not going to get into it, but they immediately proved the reason why God didn't include them to begin with because they were mad at Gideon. Because he didn't call them before he went into battle, and they didn't get to boast in it. They didn't get to share in the glory. It all went to God. And that's why God arranges things to where it's all about Him, and we just have to give Him all the glory. We have to rely completely on Him. Dexter? You've got to see yourself as without strength. You've got to see yourself as helpless and hopeless apart from God speaking and God doing a work. When you go forward, but you've got to go forward with confidence that this sovereign God will do a work. And if you will faithfully proclaim this word, this message that he's given you and shine this light, then Christ will ride forth and he will slay those enemies whether you can see it or not. There's going to be victory 
the darkness is going to be pushed back. And Christ is going to prevail. He's going to do it through your preaching and ministry. And for each one here, He will do it through your gospel proclamation. But He will also do it in your own life. As you saturate yourself in this Word and you preach this truth to yourself, Christ will ride forth in your own heart and mind. And He will change you. He will destroy those strongholds and those idols. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, The weapons of our war are not carnal, but they're mighty for the tearing down of strongholds. That's what this is. It's this very same thing that we're looking at today. This Word of God is the sword that Christ uses to defeat His enemies. And it's what has been given to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Spirit. And we just ask that You take this vision, this Word, this truth, and that You apply it to our hearts, that You be with Dexter and Raina as they go forth to serve You, that You be with everyone in this place, that You open our hearts to see Christ more, to see Your glory more, to trust You more, and to continue to draw near. Lord, we thank You for Your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.